hi, I want to welcome you. And I'm trusting that this stop at this site will keep you informed, educated, and really equipped for how God would have you live your life from the Word of God. And so this is a place where I hope you can share this location and we can experience God doing amazing things in our lives because He's promised us that His Word will not return void. Twenty-five different titles That's for Antichrist right. in That's Revelation. Right. Twenty-five. Twenty-five. He's called the Man of Sin, the Lawless One. You can just go right through, and and um, all of these titles are meant to give us a little glimpse into his character, his personality. He is the most wicked, most awful person. I mean, take Hitler and Stalin and uh, Mao Zedong and all those people, yeah. and wrap them all up to one, and then multiply them, and you won't even come close to the awful uh, character of this man. And he's going to gain control of this world, and everyone will be under his domination, because if they aren't, they won't be able to function. So, David, our audience curiosity, my curiosity is, um, where does this man come from? What can you tell us about us, about him, based on biblical revelation? Right. I believe he comes out of the European coalition. The Bible says that early in his in his uh, career, he takes power over three nations, and then with those three nations, he gets power over the European coalition, and then ultimately he comes to power over all the world. And uh, when we talk about the false prophet in a few moments, you'll learn that his his uh, strategy for gaining control of the world is to provide a license for everybody to basically be alive. Uh, we call it the mark of the beast, but basically this license was set up to control the economy of the world and and the way the way you qualified to be able to eat and sell and buy and all of that was to worship the beast mm-hmm. who is the antichrist the beast from the sea and so there that's where we get the mark of the beast and and uh, he he gain, gains control over all the world here's the key thing that he does he makes a covenant with Israel at the beginning of his career and he promises to protect them from all of their arabic enemies and 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 okay. and so Israel goes back home and they they kind of disarm they use all of their inventiveness mm-hmm. and try to rebuild their economy yeah. and the bible says while they're at peace he comes in and he breaks the covenant that he had made with them so the peace treaty is 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 negated and, at it's the end over. of three and a half years he comes in and he violates their temple he comes in and he destroys he see when he makes the covenant he says you can continue your worship at the end of the three and a half years, he says, that's it, no more. I'm going to be worshipped now. You you don't worship anymore. And in, in what the Bible calls the the abomination of desolation, the Antichrist actually goes into the Jewish temple. I mean, this is hard to comprehend. He goes into the Holy of Holies. He removes all the furniture, and he sets up a statue in the Holy of Holies, which is an idol unto himself. Mm. And he requires the whole earth to bow down and worship. What degree of persecution does uh, does Antichrist uh, empower? You know, it's interesting. This is a very insightful question because it's not just all uh, overt persecution. Just stop and think about it for a moment. If you can't buy and you can't sell, you can't pretty soon you don't have any food and my my belief is that many of the people during the tribulation are going to die from starvation because there won't be any way they will not be able to participate in the economy of the world and they won't be able to eat and so little by little they will 
they will they'll die. So we embody the most cruel of 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 uh, leaders, empowered by Satan. Satan, yeah, who has now assumed control of the world. Right. Just as God has a Trinity, Satan has a Trinity, right. an unholy Trinity. Uh, Satan re- responds to God the Father. The Antichrist responds to God the Son, and the false prophet responds to God the Holy Spirit. So you've got an unholy trinity empowered by Satan, and their purpose is to do evil at its greatest ever. Unpack a little bit about this false prophet. Is it, a, is it uh, someone with a theological background, uh, well, someone who's seen as a religious-type figure? I mean, there are all yeah, kinds of theories. Yeah, right. But his whole purpose is not religious. His, the religious leader, the false prophet, really becomes the economic czar under the under the rulership of the Antichrist, and he manages. He's religious, and he's the religious leader and the economic leader, and he's the one who enforces the mark of the beast. He's the one who causes everybody to bow down to the Antichrist. He's the worship leader, really. Oh. He makes them worship the Antichrist, and if they don't, they don't get a mark. If they if they have a mark, they've already capitulated to worship the beast. Something's got to happen here. Right. What happens? Well, the first thing that happens is the Antichrist is now in control, and he can ultimately finally do what he wants to do. He's going to march against Israel and wipe them off of the earth. What um, the uh, former president of Iran said he wanted to do, the Antichrist will now determine to do. He will march Hot with Ahmadinejad. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He will march toward. He will march toward Israel. And then all of a sudden, he'll begin to start hearing things that are happening. Mm. Other armies are coming toward him from the north, from the south. Uh, Eastern armies coming across the Euphrates River. And he has to stop for a moment and try to deal with that. Well, he does. And to, to kind of fast forward as quickly as we can, all of a sudden, all of these armies are together. And there is a new opponent that they weren't apparently aware, aware of. The Lord Jesus Christ comes back, mm. and these enemies that were fighting each other now have a common opponent. So they all come together to fight against Jesus Christ in what we call the Battle of Armageddon. I've seen where that's going to take place yes, in right. Israel. It's the most marvelous battlefield you've ever seen. Right. But all of a sudden, all these armies are together, and Jesus Christ comes back. And so the Antichrist leads the armies of the world against Jesus Christ, and the Bible tells us that Christ comes back with his holy ones and with all the angels. And Christ, by the breath of his mouth, I tell our people when I preach this, he goes, and all the rebellious people of the earth are destroyed. And it's such a great destruction that the 19th chapter of Revelation says, God has to summon the birds of the air from all over the earth to come and clean up the carnage that's created. Is that scene there at Armageddon, is that what we refer to as the apocalypse? Is that that apocalyptic that, moment? What, that that's right. That's when Jesus it. Christ is finally ultimately revealed to the whole. That's the apocalypse, the revealing of Jesus. All right. So Jesus comes, destroys uh, Antichrist, takes down the uh, uh, takes down the weaponry, takes away all the allies, everything, the coalitions all fall apart. What happens then next according to the word of God? All, all of those who have rebelled against the Lord are destroyed. The only people left on this earth are people who are believers in Christ or followers of Christ. Right. The, um, 
the carnage is cleaned up and Jesus Christ comes and he sets up his kingdom on this earth. It's called the millennium, which is a word which is easy to remember. It's made out of two words, mill, which means a thousand, and annum, which means year. So right. the millennium is a thousand years. Jesus Christ sets up his kingdom on this earth and all those who are followers of him are there. And the Bible says those of us who lived and uh, were raptured will be with him and will help him administrate what goes on during the millennium and King David will be his vice regent and it's going to be that's one of my favorite chapters because everything that was in Eden and was destroyed by the fall now comes back and it's even better but then there is the biblical revelation of Jesus Christ the judge and uh, there is a there there are several judgments in the Bible but this one you refer to is it the great white throne judgment just as there are no unbelievers at the judgment seat of Christ there are no believers at the great white throne all unbelievers of all time will stand before the judge of all the earth and give an account of themselves and the Bible says and the books will be opened and they will be judged out of the books and the books aren't listed in the book of Revelation, but if you read the scripture carefully, you begin to pick up on some of them. Uh, there's there's the book of their life, what they did with their life, their words, their conscience. But the most important book is the book of life. And the Bible says in Revelation chapter 20, and if their name is not found written in the book of life, the Lamb's book of life, they will be cast into the lake of fire and, and suffer forever and ever. So there is the future of ones who do not know Christ. Right. What about the future of Satan, uh, this horrible, terrible, harassing, and accusing mm. creature? Well, let me tell you about Satan and his, and his buddies. At the end of the tribulation, at the, at the Battle of Armageddon, the false prophet and the beast are cast into Hades. That's what the Bible says, right? I'm just, I'm just telling you what the scripture sure. says right there. Sure. Then, a thousand years happens. Satan is still there. He's bound, but he's not been cast into the lake of fire yet. Yeah. At the end of the of, of the millennium, the Bible says he joins his two buddies in the lake of fire. They actually are in hell for a thousand years before he is, and they become the first inhabitants of hell. And the Bible says those who have rejected Christ and have followed Satan in his ways, who have taken the mark of of the beast in order that they might escape the judgment they will be cast into that lake of fire along with Satan and the false prophet and the beast. And that's a very uh, uncomfortable thing for people to say. But I like to remind everybody that if God did not do that, he couldn't be God. If God could passively stand by and watch the evil that we're beginning to see, even in our world today, and do nothing, he would disqualify himself as the God of the earth. He must do right. And even though we... We know he does right with love and mercy and justice. He also does right with judgment. And at the end, his judgment will be poured out. Then what happens? Then the Bible says... This is, a, this is just, it's, you know, it's momentous. It's just yeah, the kingdom, breathtaking. The Bible says that the kingdom of our, of our Lord will be delivered unto the Father. The, the whole, if you read the, the stories, and Dwight Pentecost says there's more in the Bible about the millennium than any other subject in prophecy. If you read all of the Old and New Testament scriptures about the millennium and the, and the beauty of it, and yeah. I think in my chapter I have like 10 or 11 characteristics of the millennium. People live to be old. They have children uh, when they're 100 years old and there's no death and there's no sickness. And the millennium is just this pristine thing that yeah. 
in, in the back of our mind yeah, we, we look yeah, for. Yeah. That's just going to be extended for eternity, and it's called heaven. God has a plan, and it's laid out for us in the Scripture. Some of it is dark, but in every dark place, there's always a parenthesis of his grace and mercy. God never leaves us without a witness, even during the tribulation. He sends 144,000 people and two mega witnesses sure. to this dark earth because of his love and, and his compassion for people. If you don't get to heaven, it won't be because God doesn't want you there. He's done everything he knows how to do, everything that can be done, including giving his own begotten son to pay the penalty for your sin and mine. So when you stand before the Lord someday and he says to you, why should I let you in my heaven? I hope you'll be prepared to say, because I received your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as my savior and my substitute, and he has promised me the gift of eternal life. And if you haven't done that, wherever you are as you watch this and listen to this, the whole purpose of this is not to make you smarter about Revelation, but to help you know that God loves you, that Christ died for you, that he paid a way for you to go to heaven. And you have to make your reservation in the here and now, because after you die, it will be too late. Is it appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment? IMTV with your host, Dr. Stephen Finney. Dr. Finney is the founder of IOM America, Identity Matters Worldview Institute, and the IM Online School. He is the author of several books that focus on Christ, culture, and creator, all centered on the believer's identity in Christ. We welcome you today to the Eschatology series, Unfolding the Power of Prophecy. Welcome to number 70, The River of Life. We're getting close to concluding our series on the book of Revelation. Let's take a look at our scripture for today. We are in Revelation chapter 22 and we'll be speaking from verses 1 through 8. And it says, And he showed me a river of water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and the Lamb in the middle of its street. And on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves on the tree were the healing of the nations. There shall no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And his bondservants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. And there shall no longer be any night, and they shall not have the need of the light of the lamp, 
nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them, and they shall reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are fruitful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which shortly take place. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. And I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. May God bless his word. Now let's take a look at the river and that tree of life. Here we are in the last chapter of Revelation, and it finishes with some of the most profound words spoken in this book. I often wonder how John felt at this point in his vision. Our Lord took John on a tour that brings him to one of the greatest revelations of all, the river of water of life, and the tree of life planted next to it. With no sea to be found in this prime real estate, the source of such water is none other than what is proceeding out of the throne of God and the Lamb. Everything is about the throne of God. Any indwelt believer should know and understand that. It always has been and eternally will always be. So many scholars make this about a symbol of what the throne is all about. But I believe in the literal translation of this water. I believe you will see the pure, undefiled, and unpolluted outpouring of the water of life, and all that was washed in it became as pure as the Lamb of God. Now imagine, if you can, a large tree, the tree of life, rooted on both sides of this river, the river of life flowing under the center of this tree. Allow me to share some historical data regarding this tree. If you remember, after God was finished with the Garden of Eden, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit had created many trees in the paradise, but only two that were pointed out for specific reasons the tree of life, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Let's take a look at that tree of life. Genesis chapter 2 verse 9 says, And out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life was not something that showed up on the back end of man's timeline. It was there before man entered the garden. And the tree of knowledge does not show up on the back end of prophecy stated in Revelation chapter 22 for a good reason. The tree of knowledge was the grand symbol 
of the great city of Babylon, and I believe that it was an actual tree. As we learned in chapter 18, Christ destroyed this tree and caused it to fall, then consumed it with fire. Now remains the tree of life. Secondly, Jewish Orthodox scholars believe, and so do I, that the tree of knowledge was situated between the Tigris and Euphrates, which on modern maps is a well-documented location of old Babylon. As for the place they found Saddam Hussein after hiding when America was overpowering Iraq, who, by the way, was actively rebuilding the city at the start of the Iraq War. These same Jewish scholars also believe that the Tree of Life was situated on the same spot that the Dome of the Rock resides, which happens to be the exact location of the center of the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven. Now we need to take these facts and see how relevant they are to John's revelation. So let's take a look at the earthly symbolic rivers. There was one river that flowed out of the garden that broke off into four rivers. First we need to understand that the single river was most likely the river of life, and its job was to water the garden. Read more about that in Genesis 2, verse 10. The first river it broke off into was Pigeon, meaning the primary flow of life that flows around gold, pearls, and onyx. The second river is Gion, which means river of force meaning the flow of what bursts forth also a spring found in Jerusalem that surrounds the descendants of Ham, which of course are the Muslim. The third river is Tigris, meaning the water surrounding Abraham's land. The fourth and final river is the Euphrates, meaning the prophecies against Egypt and Babylon. Now let's connect the dots, or the rivers, that come from Eden to the book of Revelation. The primary river is the source from which all rivers came into existence. The first river is the sacred thread of righteousness that flows around the gold, pearls, and onyx in which the foundation of the streets in the New Jerusalem are made. The second river is Ham's descendant surrounding Jerusalem. Today we know that as the Dome of the Rock, plus the constant battle in the Middle East of the Islamic nation trying to take over Israel. The third river is the expression of the descendants and promises of God that come forth from the loins of Abraham, which includes the grafted bridal members, that is us, the true indwelt believers. Then the fourth and final river, of course that's the Euphrates, is the new Babylon that is destroyed in Revelation 18. Now let's look at all four in a list. Number one, the remnant righteous thread of God, which of course is life from Eden. 
Number two, the rebel group that comes against the entire world, particularly the nation of Israel. And those rebels, of course, are the Muslims. Number three, the chosen people of God, descendants of Abraham, and the grafted, bridal members of Jesus Christ, both Jews and Gentiles. Then number four is the old and new Babylon. When we calculate these four basic groups, here's what we find. All of the creation started with the tree of life and what flows from it. The first group that Satan uses to war against this river of life is the descendants of Cain and then Ham, sons of Ishmael. This group not only starts a war with the sons of Abraham, Christians and Jews, but maintains that war to the very end by making use of a global system called Old and New Babylon. Special note here, though, the entire struggle defined and depicted in the book of Revelation is over and around these four threads or rivers. Let's put this in perspective. Before the flood, there were five rivers, counting the single river that formed the four rivers. After the flood, there remained two, the Tigris and Euphrates. That means no river of life which will be reintroduced in the final chapter of Revelation. The river of Gion disappears, but reappears in Jerusalem as a spring that surrounds the people of Israel. The remaining two rivers that survived the flood flow through the land of Babylon, which is now Iraq and Syria. Those two rivers symbolize the final struggle for power, the descendants of Abraham and the descendants of Babylon. This reveals the simplicity of the end times. We are so used to hearing about wars and rumors of wars that our minds complex the final details in the final battle. The easiest way to remember this final battle is through the fight for power and control of Ishmael versus Isaac. Let's review the Muslim-dominant countries. Those who have kept up with the news will notice that these two nations are managed and dominated by the Muslim race. Also note that the Muslim people are unorganized and fighting for headship within the ranks of their own people. All four main veins of the Muslim group are steadily working to form the Islamic nation. As with any race, forming your nation is what grants power and numbers. The Muslim or the dark-skinned Babylonians must unite to form and establish the new Babylon which will rule and dominate the world. Remembering this is the world structure and government that Christ comes to destroy in chapter 18 of Revelation. I have personally talked with major Islamic leaders. They all believe that the Islamic world power, Gog, Prince of Rosh, 
and the governments that they represent must be formed to deal with the infidels of the world, including the descendants of Japheth, which is the European or white people. Here's the problem. The second group of world leaders that are descendants of Japheth, who oppose the Muslim, are forming their structural system of power. And yes, there will be a great jihad, holy war, that will be declared between the two. Also remember that the descendants of Japheth is what forms the European Union. The best way to describe the European Union is it's the UN in the Middle East. Muslims believe that Christians are of the race of Japheth because of being American. And yes, Americans, in the end, will be the European Union. That is, if the UN and the EU merge as one single force, which is what I believe. The reality is both groups claim to be the rightful heir of Babylon, which in reality both are. The key to remember here is that Satan will be ruling the new Babylon no matter who makes their claim to the wealth and power. Ezekiel 39 verses 1 and 2 says this, And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and saying, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, and I will turn you around, drive you on, take you up from the remote parts of the north, and bring you against the mountains of Israel. The other thing to realize is that God himself will be the one who will force Gog to come up against the mountain of Israel, the rightful heir of the promised land. How much territory does this promised land cover? Well, it's actually the entire area of the Garden of Eden, with Orthodox Jewish scholars believing it is the same measurements of the new Jerusalem. If you go to a map and mark out 1,500 square mile block, pin the center to Jerusalem, you will have the garden laid out for you, which covers the entire Middle East conflict. Keep in mind that before the flood, the seas represented would not exist. Now let's take a look at that 1,500 square mile box. Right now, the Muslim race dominates 86% of the countries represented in this box. The remainder of the percentage is predominantly European-influenced. This is why I carefully watched the political, financial, and religious climate in the nations and cities that are represented within this 1,500-square-mile area. Another thing to keep in mind is that when you stare at this box, you are looking at the dimensions of a building, fortress, the holy city, the capital of the universe, that will not touch this defiled earth, but will hover directly above the old Jerusalem. You can read that right out of Revelation 21. 
verses 10 through 27. Now knowing that, we understand that God and God alone will recapture the garden and reveal the original tree of life. Interesting note here, when God forced Adam and Eve out of the garden, he closed the gate and placed an angel with a flaming sword to guard this gate. Genesis 3 verse 24 says, So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he stationed a cherubim and a flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Even though man was allowed to populate the area after the flood, I believe that Satan, not his demons, was bound to this area, particularly the area of the tree of knowledge, which is located in old Babylon. I believe that the Tower of Babel just might have been erected on this same spot. This is also why I believe the confrontations, wars, and destruction that God reveals in the book of Revelation all center on Babylon and the garden area. Since the Jewish Orthodox scholars believe that the tree of life was on the hill of our Lord's holy temple, I thus believe this is why the Muslims were compelled to take the city, build the Dome of the Rock, and maintain ownership of this spot. It all started at the trees, and I can assure you, it will end there. It is comforting and refreshing to know that our Lord is the one who will allow orchestration of the world uniting under the banner of Islam and the European Union. The Lord is the one who sets the stage for the final battle, not the nations, not their self-proclaimed religious rites. Well, when we read Ezekiel 39 verses 3 through 6, it says, I will strike your bow from your left hand and dash down your arrows from your right hand. I will fall on the mountains of Israel, you and your troops and the people who are with you. I will give you as food to every kind of predatory bird and beast of the field. You will fall on the open field, for it is I who have spoken, declares the Lord. And I will send fire upon Magog and those who inhabit the coastlands in safety, and they will know that I am the Lord. Well, this is the passage from Revelation where God will be feeding the birds of the air and the beast of the fields, the carcasses of Gog and Magog. That's that battle, that final battle, that is spoken of in Revelation's book. In reviewing the tree of life, this single tree bears 12 different kinds of fruit, yielding a different fruit each month. These 12 kinds of fruit are actually representation of the fruit within the 12 tribes of Israel. The actual leaves on the tree were for the healing of the nations that stayed loyal and faithful during the times of deception that the Antichrist suffered the world with. 
Despite all the demonic world issues for 6,000 years, we, the body of Christ, can finally eat of the tree of life. It is such a comfort to know and experience no more fighting the curse. Having Christ sit on his throne, we as servants serving him, and look into his face, all while we bear his name on our foreheads. While on our faces before him, we recognize no more night to tempt us with fear. No sun or lamps to light our way, but only the Shekinah glory of our husband lighting up every corner of eternity. I cannot tell you how grateful I am that God revealed the clarity of truth to me and other prophets of the ages. His words that are faithful and true certainly is our greatest comfort. I have learned to embrace the commissioning of the Lord told to his beloved John. I often remember Revelation 22 verse 7 and it says, And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy in this book. I have read, studied, and prayerfully heeded the words of this great book. I am certain I will be surprised that some of my comments turned out to be assumptions. But I am also aware that much of my commentary was imparted truths from the indwelling mind of Christ. I cannot tell you how many times over the past seven years in writing this commentary and presenting these messages that I too have fallen at the feet of Jesus and wept and worshipped. As with John, I have taken the words he said, and he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy still be filthy, And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. That's out of Revelation 22, verses 10 through 11. Blessed are you if you had your robe washed in the blood of the Lamb. For if you have, you have been given the right to the tree of life and enter the gate into the great city, the New Jerusalem. You and I both know that outside of our lives in Christ, there are dogs and sorcerers and immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. Since the indwelt Christian is in Christ, Each can testify with Christ that the words of the book of Revelation. Learn to embrace and enjoy who you are in Christ. And if you're not an indwell believer, hearken to these words. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let one who hears say, Come, and let one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, 
If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things, yes, I am coming quickly, amen. Come, Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all, amen. That is out of Revelation 22, verses 17 through 21. The grace of God through Jesus Christ saves, according to Ephesians 2.8. His grace also teaches us to go to him and to no other. All indwell believers do not agree on every detail of his second coming and final coming, but all indwelt should agree on the foundational facts that he is the only one to the Father and his new earth planned for the bride of Christ. In conclusion, Matthew 24 verse 4 says, And Jesus answered and said to them, that's his disciples, See to it that no one misleads you. And then in verse 5 it says, For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. And then finally in verse 6 it says, You will be hearing of wars, rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. In Matthew 24 verse 4, Christ foretells the going forth of deceivers. He begins with a caution. See to it that no one misleads you. The disciples expected to be told when these things should be and let in on that secret. But this caution only piques their curiosity. Christ wanted the disciples to mind their duty, follow him, and not be seduced from following him. The fact is that Christ conceals much of the prophetic knowledge because of evildoers, not because of bridal members. If Christ had and has revealed the Father and what the Father has concealed, the lawless men would simply use it to mislead many. This is why he keeps it close to his bosom and reveals it in that very hour. When we look at Second Thessalonians 2.3, it says, Let no one in any way deceive you. For it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Of course we know who that is. That is none other than Satan himself, pretending one more time to be God. Christ reveals the seducers are more dangerous enemies to the church than persecutors. In this discourse, he mentioned the appearance of false prophets three times. 
The appearance of these seducers was the occasion of dividing the people into parties and fractions, which made their ruin the more easy and speedy, and the sin of the many that were led astray by them helped to fulfill this measure. Secondly, it was a trial to the disciples of Christ, and therefore agreeable to their state of trial, that which are perfect may be made manifest. This is the message of the bride, that we would be perfected by staying on our toes. Coming up next is number 71, Apostasy Must Come. Most conservative Christians are annoyed by the Christians who are liberal in their thinking, not believing the word to be literal and absolute. Honestly, in the end times, many bridal members will view the word of God to be primarily culture, not literal or absolute. Christ warned us of these things. By the way, we are in those times right now. This period of Christianity is called the apostasy, the great falling away. You don't have to look into the future for this event. I personally believe it was activated just over these past few years. We may not be in the middle of the great apostasy, but we certainly are entering the warm-up phase. We're going to talk more about that in our next episode, and we hope you'll join us. But until then, we want to thank you for listening today. We look forward to the conclusion of the book of Revelation, and we hope that you will join us. Until next time.